following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Have any of you ever encountered the church police? There's those people out there, you know, usually it's like grouchy old people. Not that young people can't be grouchy, but it kind of goes with the territory of being the church police. And their job is to make sure, you know, there's no unauthorized activity in church, right? Uh, And it can come in many forms, but one of those is like this. You know, usually it happens sometime either before or after the main worship service when people are gathering and, uh, you know, you got, like in our church, maybe this, we call this the sanctuary, but since we... Not really so much a church, but in a place where it's the sanctuary, right? The sanctuary. And there's like carpet and pews and candles and stuff. And and, um, and it's the job of the church place to make sure children do not run in the sanctuary because that is not allowed, right? The kids go running and screaming, being happy in the sanctuary. You can't have that because there should be no joy in church. No happiness, no running, you know. And so the church place will grab the kids usually and, you know, scold them. Don't you know that's not appropriate here, right? And we kind of boot them out. Now, of course, in the middle of the service, I would agree, you know, that's probably not appropriate. But um, it's funny how we view what church is, right? And we view this building. Maybe some of you encountered that. Maybe some of you are the church police, and I've just totally offended you. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, or, Or even, you know, kind of extending it beyond that a little bit. And maybe this isn't practiced so much today, but I I was a kid. I distinctly remember visiting friends and and other families who, it wasn't just church and the sanctuary that had to be policed. It was the whole day because it was a Sabbath, right? And so I'd go over to my friend's house and say, hey, you want to go play baseball? Oh, we can't because it's the Sabbath, right? And they couldn't watch TV, they couldn't watch football games, and you certainly couldn't do anything fun because we all know that God is against fun, right? And it is not appropriate to do stuff like that on the Sabbath or in church. Uh, well, this story reminds me a lot of those things, and it's a story about uh, the church police, right? And uh, this uh, religious ruler, literally, literally the, the synagogue leader, the synagogue um, director, we could call him, uh, encounters Jesus, and Jesus clearly kind of goes outside of the box. And, uh, and it is an important question, and I'm not saying that anything and everything is, a, is appropriate in church on Sunday morning, right, or on the Sabbath, or for that matter, in our lives. But how we answer what's appropriate in church on Sunday morning or what's appropriate on the Sabbath uh, tells us a whole lot about our, our, our faith, what we value and what's important in our, our religion, uh, for lack of a better term or better word. Uh, Jesus came not bring, bringing so much a religion as he came bringing a kingdom. Uh, but it was a kingdom of certain values and ideals and boundaries. And what Jesus felt was appropriate on, on the Sabbath, what was appropriate in church, was very different than what the religious leaders of his day felt was appropriate in church. So... Um, as we read through the story and think through the story, a good question for us is to ask, you know, are, are we really lining up with where Jesus was or are we maybe more lining up with uh, the church police? Right? Which, which one do we find ourselves in? What does it tell us about our, our understanding of who God is and what he wants to do in our life? 
Um, so let's look at the passage. Again, we're going to look at the first section. But uh, I've called this message the, uh, the hope of the kingdom because the end passage where he talks about uh, the kingdom, he says, what shall I compare the kingdom to, is really a commentary that helps us understand this first story that unfolds here. And so we'll look next week at how Jesus um, interprets these events in, in these parables. But for this morning, we're going to focus on the story itself, the events that happen. And it's kind of about doing church. And it starts off, it says, you know, Jesus was teaching uh, in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And we don't talk about this or uh, understand this a lot. So let me give a little bit of background on, on what the synagogue was. Um, we all know that for the Jews, the, the center of their worship actually was not the synagogue. It was the temple, right? There was only one temple in Jerusalem on, on the Holy Mount. And uh, there were some, some, some prescribed feasts where they had to go and bring offerings and, and, and have, um, well, not so much a pig roast, but they actually would barbecue. Uh, and they would have this meal, uh, so much like we're doing today, right? And that was focused on the temple, but because it was a great distance for most people, uh, they may actually only go to worship in the temple maybe once a year. Uh, if they were at a great distance. There were three major holidays, and of course there were offerings offered every day. But for most people, they could not participate in that. And even if you were in Jerusalem and could go to the temple, unless you were a priest, you observed most of it from outside. And there were certain courtyards and places where you could be and couldn't be. Um, so for the daily practice of worship, the temple was not um, something that most Jewish people would have participated in. And so uh, the synagogue came about actually not during Israel's earlier history, but during the Babylonian uh, captivity when uh, the Israelites were taken off in exile, far, far from the temple, and the temple had been destroyed. Uh, they started start feeling homesick and, and wanted to keep their, their, their nation and their faith alive in daily practice. So they sent up synagogues, and a synagogue is just the Greek word that means a, a gathering or an assembly. They would assemble on the on the Sabbath. Hello. Uh, they would they would gather on the Sabbath, and they would essentially do what would look to us just like church. Okay? And uh, after the exile, it had so much value and profit for them that uh, when they came back from the exile, they they kept the practice of regular assembly or gathering on the Sabbath in the synagogues, and they built centers, little worship places. Uh, very much what we would call churches, right? And in fact, the early church borrowed heavily from the worship practice and format of the synagogues. They basically followed the same exact format. Uh, and the ruler in this story, the, the synagogue ruler was called the Hazam. Uh, and he was not so much a pastor as, as much as he was an administrator who organized the worship. So he didn't necessarily preach, uh, but he's the one who made sure that the the elements of the worship service were, were followed uh, carefully, and he would assign different tasks. And the way the worship service would go like this, uh, people would come in, and the, it would begin with the reciting of the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God is one, and they would recite that together. Then there would be uh, the reciting or reading of prayers. And in fact, we call it a worship service. They actually called it a prayer service because that was a huge focus of what they did. And a lot of it were blessing prayers, and they had, uh, uh, some scholars believe there was as many as 18 prayers that they would read uh, after the Shema. Uh, so they spent time reading these prayers. 
Then they would read from the Law of Moses, the Torah, uh, and they followed a very set liturgy. In other words, they had a three-year cycle where they would read through the Law of Moses. So in three years, they would have read the whole of the Pentateuch. And then there would be a reading from uh, one of the prophets, also very scripted, very followed in a, in a program. Um, and then at the end of that time, there would be a sermon, right? So interestingly, no, worship, no music. Right? They didn't do music in the synagogue worship. But other than that, it would be very similar to what we do. Um, praying, uh, reading scripture, preaching. Um, and, and those are all good and important things. And it was part of what kept the, the life of faith uh, alive for, for, the, for, the, for the Jews as they're scattered all over Israel as well as all over uh, the Roman Empire. And Jesus often participated. We see several places through the Gospels where Jesus took advantage of these church services. And, of course, he went as a participant, but he was often invited to teach or to read. And the way it would work, the the synagogue ruler, the Hazam, would appoint people, uh, maybe as you're coming in the door, or I don't know how this worked, if he sent out emails, if he had Elvanto, maybe, I don't know, uh, good you know people organizing this. But uh, he would assign people different roles in the service. So this person would read, and anybody who was an elder, which meant any male 13 years or older, could, could have a part in, in, in the service, saying a prayer, reading some scripture, uh, preaching. So often Jesus was invited to read scripture and to preach. And that's, that's what's happening here. So they're in the middle of a, a church service. So I want you to picture this setting. Um, it's not just a random meeting, but it's church. Right? And he is teaching, and it says in verse 11 that as he's teaching, uh, there was a woman who had, had a disabil- dis- disabling spirit for 18 years, and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he, lay, and, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. And so imagine this scene. Okay, it's a typical church service. And in, in church service, we all, we, all know, we all know the order, the schedule, right? And we're people, we're creatures of habit, and most of us appreciate the structure and the order, right? And for a lot of us, if things get out of order, like, you know, if you do offering at the wrong time, it's like causes some people to go into, like, convulsions, right? Or if, heaven forbid, like we would start off the very beginning of the service with a sermon, like with like no, not even announcements. I just got up and preached. People would be looking at their watches going, am I late? Am I late? Right? Because we, we follow order. We like that. Right? We like the structure of it. Well, uh, this is true. So, so imagine you're in this church service, and you've gone through the Shema, and you said all the prayers, and you read the scriptures, and you're at the sermon time, which means you're almost done. Right? It's like, well, we're almost done. You can smell that pig roasting, and... You know, you're excited. And, uh, and, and Jesus gets up and he starts preaching. And, you know, he's kind of interesting, and, you know, but it's just a sermon. <laughs> and so, you know, whatever. Uh, but all of a sudden, in the middle of the sermon, uh, somebody who's been a part of your church for years, right? This woman who is completely bent over. I mean, she's completely bent so that she cannot stand up straight. And she's lived her whole life with this, this great disability. And Jesus notices her. And... And he looks at her and he calls out to her, woman. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're awake. I mean, you were mostly asleep. All of a sudden, wow, what, who, what? Something's changing here, right? He calls her and he says, woman, you are, you are set free from your illness. 
And Jesus, he leaves the front of the church. He actually walks, right? No lapel mic. But he, he walks, and he walks over towards the back of the church. And this is like, this is like really making you nervous because nobody's ever done this in church before, right? And you're starting to, to panic, kind of break out in a cold sweat. <gasps> What's going to happen, right? And Jesus puts his hands on this woman, and immediately she stands up straight uh, like, she ha- like you have never seen her. Right? You have never seen her like this. And she stands up tall and straight, and she's, she, she is a new person, right? And she screams out, Hallelujah! Right? And all of a sudden, and now, I mean, like, this is, this, is, this is bordering on chaos, right? And she starts praising God because she has just been set free, and she can stand up straight, right? And uh, all the people in the crowd are, are like, Wow, that is cool, right? That is cool. Well, um, you know, I'd like to be in that kind of church service, right? Uh, it's a little out of the ordinary, but uh, powerful, right? Powerful. As Jesus exercises power uh, in setting this woman free. But not everybody is happy, right? Not everybody likes this. Church police steps up, okay? Because this is job. Church police steps in. We have just violated the order of worship. This was not in the program, right? Uh, you're just supposed to preach. You're not supposed to be, don't be going places. Don't be touching people during the sermon, right? And so the, the synagogue ruler stands. He says, but the ruler of the synagogue, in verse 14, is indignant. He is angry because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Literally, there are six days in which it's necessary for work to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Uh, this guy's angry. He's just bent all out of shape, right? He's got his shorts all up in a knot because Jesus just wrecked the worship service. Um, and he, he's, he's angry. And, and uh, not only apparently the ruler, but all of Jesus' opponents, these, this group of religious leaders, of Pharisees, of others, who do not appreciate or are, are having a growing uh, distrust and, and disdain, really, for who Jesus is and what he's about. And um, they don't like what is going on here. Um, it is not within the order of service. And beyond that, it is, in, in their mind, it was breaking the laws of the Sabbath. Right? So it was neither appropriate for church, and it was even less appropriate as an activity to be done on, on, the, on the Sabbath. Well, what, what, what's really the problem here? What, what was really their, uh, their frustration and their anger? Well, I think uh, one of the issues here is that the Jews had got to a place where their worship was by liturgy. Their worship was all about the form and format of the activities. Right? Now, these, these forms and these activities are not bad, but those events, those activities had become the goal and the focus and the purpose of their meeting. Right, so if you were to ask them, what's the, kind of your vision statement? Why do you have church? What is the goal of your assembly and your gathering together? And, and the, the, the Hazam, the synagogue ruler, would have said, well, it's to do these activities. We gather for the purpose of, of, uh, of prayer and of reading of Scripture and of preaching of the Word. Now, uh, those are good things. And uh, 
Interestingly, if we were to, if I were to do a survey, if we were to ask people here before you hear the sermon, you know, what, what's the purpose of church? You might say the same thing. Our, pur- our purpose is to come and pray and to read scripture and to hear the preaching of the word and to worship in song. Right? Uh, and what happens is we start thinking that it is the liturgy, it is this format, it is these activities that is the worship. And, and the idea is that if we've gone through these things, if I go through the checklist and I did all those things, I can say I have worshipped God because I did the activity. And I think that's where the Jews were in this day. They saw that these, these activities were the end in themselves, and it was the goal. And that somehow if we do all that stuff, and if we get it in the right order, that we have, we have worshipped, right? We have met our obligation before God. We have accomplished the goal of our meeting together. Um, but Jesus had a very different view on it, right? For Jesus, the purpose was not actually just going through the motions of the activity. And the reality is, uh, for us, we can show up week after week after week with the, with the goal of just doing the stuff, right? Singing the songs, praying the prayers, reading the scriptures, hearing the message. And, and we think that's the, that's the point of church. That's the point of our gathering. Well, even as a preacher, <laughs> I would say if that's why you came, you're missing the point. Right? Jesus said you're missing the point. That is not the goal. Right? And, 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 of course, Jesus, does not, he's not saying that those things are bad. He participated in them. He practiced them. He engaged in them. He used them. But for Jesus, that was not the focus or the goal or the purpose of it. They were simply tools to get to something more important or more significant. So this morning, why are you here? Right? Why, are, why are we gathering? Did you come simply to sing some songs and pray some prayers and read some scripture and hear a message? Right? Or is there something more to it than that? Of course, another issue that was going on here is that they, um, they felt that Jesus had violated the Sabbath because he was doing, he was doing work. Now, of course, nowhere in the actual law of Moses, nowhere in the actual Pentateuch does it say that healing was was violating the Sabbath. But um, uh, labor was was, was a violation of the Sabbath. And so the Jews had had created a a whole list of oral traditions that spelled out labor and work. Uh, It's it's ironic to me uh, as a preacher, right, that... They had no problem with them preaching on the Sabbath. That was not considered work, which is painful for me because a lot of people think preachers only work one day a week. And now I come to find out even that's not work. That's really discouraging, right? It's a bummer. This doesn't count. Um, and for the Jews, it didn't count. It wasn't considered a labor to preach. And it's, to me, it's ironic that uh, you, know, you could preach and that wasn't work. Um, no matter how much work you put into it, that wasn't work. But healing somebody was considered labor. Uh, now, now, here's a fine distinction. If Jesus had done this, if Jesus had simply prayed for the woman, see, prayer was also not a work. So he could have said, hey, you know, I see this sister over here. She's all bent over. Let's pray for her. Right? And he could have prayed for her. And if, as a result of the prayer she had stood up, Jesus would have been off the hook. Right? Because you can pray. And then God healed, and Jesus simply prayed. Right? But the problem is Jesus... He, he, uh, he speaks to her, you're, you're loosed, you're set free. And then he goes over, and this is where he makes his huge mistake. You know, he, left, he left the stage, 
That made people nervous. Then he actually put his hands on her. When he laid hands on her, now all of a sudden, it's labor, right? Because he's, he's working with his hands. And so now all of a sudden, he is, he's working. He's laboring. Um, and, and the, the uh, synagogue ruler says, you know, it's necessary. It's appropriate and fitting to do labor on the six days. It is not necessary. It's not fitting or appropriate to do that kind of thing on the Sabbath. Uh, another piece of irony in all this is that he, the synagogue ruler does not have the courage to say this to Jesus. Right? Instead, he directs it at the crowd and says, would you quit showing up here to get healed? <laughs> well, this poor woman, she, she, uh, she, she didn't ask for this, right? She was just sitting there worshiping, listening to the sermon. Jesus notices her. Jesus takes the initiative to heal. Um, we don't know what he was preaching on, but imagine that he had just finished preaching what we saw a few verses, chapters earlier in Luke, uh, the story of the, of the, the Good Samaritan, right? Uh, the Good Samaritan came a, across this man who had been beat up and wounded in the road. And does anybody remember what moved the, the Good Samaritan to action? It says he felt compassion, right? Now, I don't know if Jesus was preaching that, but certainly Jesus lived that. When he saw somebody in need, he practiced this. He was moved with compassion. And even though she did not ask for help or look for help, she did not ask for healing, Jesus showed her compassion, right, even on the Sabbath. And he went over and he touched her and he healed her. Um, and, and so, in essence, what, what, the, what the synagogue ruler is saying here is this. He's saying, this is not the place, church, and this is not the day, the Sabbath, to be meeting people's needs. Church is not about uh, touching people and helping them. Do you agree with that? Well, uh, there's a part, there's some truth to what he says. Actually, I agree with him some. Right? I agree with him some. Contrary to modern culture. Modern church culture says this. That is exactly what church is about. Church is a place where I go and I get my needs met. Right? Uh, how often do we evaluate church by whether or not I got something while I was there? Right? You know, I would go away grumbling to your wife or you know, your husband. Wow, you know, that sermon, I just didn't get anything out of that sermon. Right? It did nothing for me. It did not help me. And we, we, we give church a D minus, you know, an F. Failed. Because I didn't get something. Right? It did not help me. Uh, there's whole books written about how preaching and, and the whole po- uh, purpose and focus of preaching is that good preaching is relevant. But here, here's the deal. Okay, here's the deal. Jesus was largely not relevant, right? Jesus did not come to give people practical advice to help them live their life. Okay, that is not what Jesus' preaching was about. If you look through Scripture, you look through what Jesus preached. He did not. He didn't make people feel like, wow, that just, I think I can go home and I can live my life better now because I got a good lesson on you know, finances or whatever. Most of the time, Jesus' teaching makes people angry. Okay? And if you're getting angry, it's probably not relevant. Well, it may be relevant, but you don't like it. right? Um, there's some truth to what the synagogue ruler says here. Church that is all about me getting what I want is man-focused. Right? It's man-centered. It's me-centered. And if that's why you come to church, 
Jesus might say you're missing something, right? He would say that's really not the purpose, right? And so in that sense, the, the synagogue ruler speaks truth. Um, but that's not to say that at church we don't encounter God's grace and compassion. But there's a difference. Let's look at the distinction. Um, Jesus responds to the synagogue leader this way. He says, the, the Lord, and I like Luke, Luke uh, ups the ante here. It's not Jesus replied, Jesus answered. It says, the Lord answered him. In other words, Luke wants to make it clear that what Jesus says here, he does not say just as a person. He says authoritatively as the Lord, as the king of the kingdom. Uh, the Lord answered him, you hypocrite. Doesn't, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Um, Literally, Jesus says, is it not necessary? Is it not necessary? Isn't it the essential necessary? Isn't it not, in fact, the very appropriate and right thing to do on the Sabbath to set this woman free, to loose her from her bondage? Um, and, And Jesus frames it this way. His argument is simply this. Look, you're a hypocrite because even you take take compassion, show h- human kindness to your animals, uh, because during the day, you, you, on Sundays they would they would not let the animals go out to pasture. They would bind them, they would tie them to the manger, right? Because they didn't want to go chase them down on the Sabbath. That would break rules. So they would tie them to the manger and feed them, but that meant that the, the ox or the donkey couldn't go drink water on its own. So they would, uh, out of care for their animals, they would un- unloose, they would untie the, the ox, and they would lead it to drink water. Right? Uh, that was a work, a labor that was allowed. Why? Because it was compassion. To do, to do less would be cruel and inhumane treatment of the animal. It would be not showing compassion to the animal. So Jesus says, you have compassion on your animals. You meet their needs on the Sabbath. How much more should we show compassion to a child of Abraham? To this daughter of Abraham. And Jesus uses very uh, carefully chosen words here. Notice he says specifically to loose her, that is literally to untie her from her spiritual bondage. In fact, earlier when Jesus speaks to the woman, he doesn't just say you are healed. He says, woman, you are freed. Same word. Woman, you are, you are let loose. You are untied from your disability. Um, there's a whole, I would love to do a whole sermon right here on this point of, um, of Jesus healing here. Because he, he, this woman's not demon-possessed, by the way. She's got a physical infirmity that's forcing her to be bent over. And there's several medical conditions that could fit that. Who knows what it was. But... Um, but Jesus describes it not in terms of biology and chemistry. He doesn't say her problem is she's got muscle spasms in her back that cause her vertebrae to fuse and you know, the joints and you know, scoliosis, whatever. No, he says, no, she is, she's bound, she's chained by Satan. Right? Uh, Jesus saw even physical uh, disabilities as ultimately a bondage of Satan. And so when he, when he sets her free, he loses her. He delivers her 
from the spiritual power that Satan has over her life and over her body that has crippled her. Right? You want to study and, t- and think about, you want a ministry of healing and prayer, uh, you need to study this passage about how Jesus understands her, uh, her problem and how he sets her free. And what he does is he delivers her, he unties her, he loosens her from spiritual bondage that Satan has over her life. So the question, is the goal of church helping people? Is some part of what we do on Sunday mornings, and not just Sunday mornings, but really is part of life in the kingdom uh, the purpose of helping people? Well, it depends on what you mean by help. Uh, Jesus does not cater to people's whims. Uh, He does not teach practical lessons to help them live better. Uh, He does not and is often not relevant in the way we mean it today. But does he help this woman? Yeah, right? In a huge way. But what does that help? His help is not advice. His help is deliverance. And there's a huge difference in that. A huge difference. He sets her free from spiritual forces that are binding her life and holding her captive and prisoner. That is a world of difference from giving uh, advice, giving insight for living, giving uh, wisdom. And none of those things are bad, right? But that's not the main purpose. And that's not really what will help people. Um, When people come to you with problems and struggles, they come to you for counsel, uh, they come with prayer requests. Uh, Is there a temptation to give them advice, to say, well, what you need to do is... You know, that happened to me, and what I did was, right? And maybe that's appropriate sometimes. Probably most of the time, though, it's not. Okay, I'm just telling you. And most people don't really want advice. But I'm telling you what is appropriate and what people do need is they need deliverance. They need to be set free from Satan's grip on their life. And, of course, this can take place at two levels. Spiritually, it's a picture of salvation, Um, Church is about ushering in and bringing to people uh, salvation that comes through Christ. All people are in bondage to sin and death. They are eternally held captive by Satan, and they need to be delivered from his power over their life. And so we offer salvation through Christ. We offer the opportunity to be set free and to have life. But the reality is that salvation, while it is uh, it is an event that happens when we, we come to faith in him. The reality is that the bonds of Satan uh, on our life are many. Right? How many of us still struggle with bad habits? Right? Uh, things that Satan still has a grip on our life. You know, we're saved. We're, we're not going to hell. We're, we've been set free. We have life in Christ. But we struggle with things that are a bondage. Um, Maybe it's, it's, it's bad habits like addictions or practices or attitudes that bend us down, right? That keep us crippled, um, looking at things that we know are wrong or repeatedly doing things that we know are wrong. And we ask forgiveness and we, we know it's wrong, we, we confess, but two days later we're doing the same thing. A week later, a month later, we're doing the same thing because it's a bondage on us, right? We are not set free in that area of our life can be anger or pride or lying or just our out-of-control tongue, right? 
we're, we're constantly just having to apologize for this, the dumb things we say, right? There are bad habits that still have a grip on us. Or it can be bad thoughts. Maybe it never gets into action phase, but, but we have thought patterns that Satan has control over, right? It is a bondage because we are under the grip of Satan. Uh, it can be thoughts from the past, um, guilt, right? We, st- we stand and we live condemned, self-condemned, because we cannot believe and accept God's grace and forgiveness for our past sins, right? We beat ourselves up over our past failures. Or it can be uh, things from the past that others have done that we're unwilling to uh, forgive, and we are held bondage to a spirit of bitterness and unforgiveness. Right? Um, and those things bind us and hold us captive to Satan's power. Maybe it's bad thoughts in the present, things like lust and uh, desires for things of this world, uh, and not, not necessarily sinful things, but desires of things, craving for things of this world that are greater than our cravings for God. Um, and those are present, uh, present thoughts. Maybe it's thoughts that are directed in the future, our worry, our anxiety about money or our future, or what we're going to do, right? Maybe it's um, a perfectionism that keeps us trapped. And we're always worried that we're going to fail. We're not going to live up to other people's expectations. We're worried about our image and our reputation. You know, if people really knew what my life was like, if people ever found out what my marriage is like, right? All those things are, are chains and shackles that, that bind our life. And uh, Jesus wants to set us free. Right? He, wants us to set us, he wants to set us free from every, every bond of Satan, right? every chain, every shackle that Satan has on our life. Um, that, is the, that is one of the chief purposes of the kingdom and of church. Right? We come... Because we do need help. Right? Uh, what we need is not more relevance. What we need is the power of God over the bondage of our life. Right? And you're not going to get that through just preaching or through singing a song or just, just through prayer. Those can be channels, but ultimately those things come from the hand and power of God. Right? Uh, as God touches your life and sets you free from the things that are holding you down. That's the purpose. And Jesus does that, right? He says, yeah, this is what church is about. This is, the, this is the place. It is totally appropriate and right and necessary to find deliverance through the word and through the preaching and through the worship through church and through the kingdom. Whether it's on Sunday, the Sabbath, or throughout the week, that's why Jesus came, to set us free. Um, that is the purpose of church, to bring God's deliverance and his power into our life. Um, there's a second purpose, though. Not only, not only do we find deliverance, but we are to experience and practice real worship. Real worship. Right? What is real worship? Well, notice what happens. In verse 13, it says, He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she what? She glorified God. She glorified God. Now, was there anything fake or forced about what she does here? I don't think so. 
right? If there was real, genuine, authentic, all at 100% worship, I think this woman did it. Because she just experienced a miracle. She was just set free. And her natural, natural response was to praise God for touching her life and saving her. Verse 17, it says, As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. See, we, we gather to experience God's deliverance. And as we experience his deliverance, and as we remember his, his saving acts in our life, it ought to fill us with huge um, gratitude, right? huge gratitude, huge longing to praise and worship him. And that's, what, that's why we call it a worship service. It's supposed to be worship, right? It's supposed to be worship. It's supposed to be praise. It's supposed to be joyfully celebrating God's salvation in our life. Uh, one of the reasons we, uh, we don't end with the sermon here at CCF, one of the reasons we actually do a lot of worship after the sermon is, is because of this principle. This is what we hope happens. We hope, as you, as you hear the scripture read, as, as there's prayers, as the word is preached, we hope and pray that God touches your life in some way. And that if there are things in your life that are holding you captive, that, that you experience some of God's liberation and deliverance from those things. And if there's not anything like huge pressing your life right now, that at the very least you, you, you're confronted with God's amazing work of delivering you in the past. Right? That I am no longer held captive. I used to be like that woman bent over, unable to stand up under the burden of my sin. But God has delivered me. Right? And I am, I am ecstatic with worship and celebration. And so that's why we give an opportunity at the end of the preaching time because we hope that, you know, God does something in our midst and we together want to celebrate who God is and what he's done. And we give extended time to respond in ways that will give glory to God as true worship. Uh, The liturgy, the, the format, right, is all the stuff we do in a worship service. It's not bad stuff, okay? I'm not against preaching, for example. I think reading scripture is good. I I think singing songs are good, but here's the deal. It is all pointless if we only do it for the sake of the activity. It only has meaning and purpose to the extent that it helps us celebrate God's mighty works of deliverance in our life, right? That's the point, right? That is the point. Um, And we experience... um, Deliverance uh, through, through prayer, through the word, through preaching. And we're brought to remember these things. It ought to ignite in us a heart for worship. Um, next week, we're going to look at the, the next phase of it. But let me just cl- close with this one quick thought because it's important. Um, how did Jesus have power to do this? What, by what power and by what authority did he set her free? Well, ultimately, it was through the power of the cross. It wasn't just because he was the second person of the Trinity. That was part of it. But ultimately, uh, it was the cross that gave him the right and the power to bring about the defeat of Satan. Jesus did two significant things on the cross. Uh, And sometimes these two things get put in opposition to each other as somehow they're enemies, but they're not. 
Jesus did two things. First of all, he atoned for our sins. He paid the sacrifice for our deeds of evil so that we are no longer under its penalty. Right? He was a substitution, a substitute in our place. Right? So we don't bear the consequences of our sin. That's atonement. But also on the cross, Jesus uh, conquered Satan. Uh, oftentimes we, we, we get so caught up in what Jesus did to uh, set us free from guilt that we miss this one. But notice what he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, that is Jesus, partook of the same things. Jesus took on flesh and blood. That through death he might do what? He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus was victorious on the cross. He conquered Satan. And it is by that act that he could now, with this woman, set her free. By us, he, he sets us free from the power and authority of Satan. Uh, have you been set free? Right? Uh, let's let's bow and just as we close before God, uh, two things. First, um, consider what Jesus has done, uh, coming to earth, being born in a manger, taking on human flesh as a babe, uh, not just to be a good moral teacher, not to be relevant or give good advice, but to die in our place so that he could set us free, so that he could cleanse us and make us whole and holy before the Father. Uh, have you been set free? And what still holds you captive? Are there things in your life right now um, that you can identify where Satan still has a grip in your life? Uh, Jesus wants to set you free from those things today. And his death on the cross is powerful and effective not only to forgive your sins, but to give you power over those things that are holding you in bondage to set you free. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.